Well, Eric, now we got a question from Josh. He wants to know, he asks, is there something that you, you thought about juggling when you were younger that changed as you got older? And I guess that's, I mean, that's a really, I think that's a really good question. Um, but obviously it's, it's a possibly pretty big answer too. So I don't know, we'll have to try to select just the highlights, but <laughs> cause I think it's changed completely. But uh, yeah, do you have something to start off? Yes, I think the most dramatic change that I change that I experienced was that I took sequences in juggling for granted. When I when mm. I first when I first learned how to juggle a cascade, I knew of uh, I know of the I knew of the shower. I couldn't do a three ball shower, and then a friend of mine he showed me the three ball cascade and said something like, "No, this is how it's done. It's not a circle. Like you do it like this." And then we learned uh, three ball cascade, and I thought that was it at that point. There was no more things to juggling. That was it. Like I, of course, I understood that you could juggle more objects than three, but that felt like an impossibility. So then I saw, um, I met one guy at like a local youth club or something, and he could do some tricks like one up, two up, and I think we called it rainbow crossing, I think, when you do one <laughs> up, two up, and the, the two balls that go up, they cross. And from seeing him do a couple of variations, I realized that, oh, there's actually variations of this. And then, you know, that concept just grew and grew in my mind. And the more I got exposed to juggling, the more I realized that, no, juggling sequences and patterns and variations and such. And as when that idea had kind of anchored itself in my mind, I just took that for granted. And I took that for granted in my mind until 2007 and i just thought that juggling variations that's as old as juggling that's always been around if i see this drawing of a juggler from the middle ages he's probably doing sequences to variations yeah, you, you, you couldn't imagine anything different i could not imagine that we, we did not know th that juggling could be varied so then I visited Carline Seethen in Berlin, who he is a juggling historian who lives there and he has written a number of books um, about uh, the topic of juggling history. And you were actually the person who introduced me to him. And we started going there together from 2007 and onward. And I visited Carline Seethen several times a year until probably 2014, 15, something like that. Then it got, my visits got uh, less and less. And then, yeah, Corona, hysteria, etc. We don't need to get into that, but- uh, You had a family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kids. kids. Yeah. No, but uh, so somewhere around 2007, the, the, our, our first meetings with Carline Seethen, they were very centered around his books. Like we would take one of his books down, we would start flipping through the pages. We just go page by page. Right, page by page, and then ask him like, hey, what about this? What's happening here? Where I mean, the, the really cool thing about watching the, looking at those books with Carl page by page is that uh, they were photos of juggling and he actually knew what the action was 
like I, I could just look at the photo and go, oh, I guess that's what's happening. But he would know all the behind the scenes, all the stuff of actually what happened in the trick. And that was pretty amazing. Right. To hear that. So one at one of these uh, visits, we were looking at a picture of a medieval juggler, like a drawing. And I remember I asked Carl Heinz, Carl, what do you, what three ball tricks do you think they were doing in the Middle Ages? Like, what did their routine look yeah, like? Yeah, what, what was the routine <laughs> like? And Carl just looked at me, he goes, no, 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 there was no routine. There was no sequence. There was no tricks. It was just, you juggle the ball, you just throw the balls and you catch them and you put them away and you take something else. And I remember when he said that, it was just like a dagger in my heart. It was just like, <laughs> it was just like, I had to imagine a world where juggling variations in a sequence didn't exist, you know? Right, right. And I was just like, yeah, it was so hard for me to kind of accept that as a truth. Hmm. And I remember at the time when he said it, I was just in my in my mind, I was just like, oh no, he's he's mistaken. Of course there was variations. <laughs> like he doesn't know what he's talking about here. <laughs> I didn't say that to him though. Yeah. But then, you know, I went home and I kept, you know, I was very into, you know, studying the history of juggling and I studied every source that was available and started thinking about this specifically and also like you start to you start to uh, look at specific traces of juggling sequences and juggling variations that we actually have documentation of and you realize that even those earliest traces like books describing juggling or uh, uh, act descriptions that you realize that there's not really routines here. And even if you look at the grainy footage of Restelli, the sequences that he does, they're extremely primitive in, in their structure. It's, you know, one or two tricks and then he puts the stuff away and takes something else. It is not long sequences of, of going to, from trick to trick to trick. So after a while, I, I kind of felt like I had to accept this. I was like, okay, the pattern uh, variations, like it's it's probably a pretty new uh, idea. So when 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 did this this start happening then? And like I remember then looking at these the the, the old juggling books that I had. Now I'm not talking about Carl Heinz books. I'm talking about like there are some books that juggling literature basically goes back to about 1900. That's when juggling literature starts to appear. And, and then you have uh, books like uh, The Art of Modern Juggling, which is 1907, and <clears throat> books around that time. So if you look at the descriptions of juggling there, it is basically just how to, how to toss juggle and then how to balance and, and so to speak. And I always thought that it was these authors that just left out mm, yeah. variations, that right. the variations existed. Right. It was just that they didn't, they were not described in the books. Right. But now I don't, now I'm more of, I find it more likely now, of course you can never know 100%, but I find it more likely now that there was no variations. Hmm. And uh, I remember also reading a magic magazine, I think it's from 1903, if I recall correctly. 
and there's a description of a three ball trick and the, the trick is really really hard to decipher what's happening but eventually fi i figured out that it's the th the three ball yo-yo trick mm. and it's called ball clinging in that <laughs> ball picture. clinging ball cling like the one ball clings yeah. to another ball right yeah yeah, yeah. And I was just, and it's described as like, oh, this is the newest thing, and it's a mm. sensation, and this is the newest trick of Cinque Valle, and blah blah blah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay, like they really, that really was a big deal, mm -hmm. that someone did a variation uh, of, mm. of the patterns. Mm. So, so I started to accept this more and more, and then I, then I remember I, I came back to Karl Heinz, you know, sometime later, and I, I asked him, what do you think is the first juggler to do? like a choreographed sequence yeah. of, of juggling to music mm. and Karl Heinz said Bella Cremo. Yeah. And that kind of checks out actually if you start looking at the evidence of what we have. If you look at like Bobby May for an example when he juggles it's much more like he does a cascade and then he does a trick and then it's some other stuff. It's not as structured as Bella Cremo. And what year is Bella Cremo then? 1930. Okay. So of course, again, you can't know for sure, for sure. But if you want to, th that, that is still like a really clear re reference in my mind is Bella Cremo's routine. If you want to talk about a clear example of juggling that has uh, sequences of variations of juggling to music that's in a set sequence. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's probably, it might, there might be someone other than Bella Cremo, but that's a clear evidence that we mm. do have at hand. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of similar to you uh, a little bit in, in terms of when I started off juggling, I just thought that juggling was in one way infinite in its history or like, like these things I'm doing here, they've been done for, for uh, it's, it's timeless. Like who can say who juggled clubs? <laughs> who could say who juggled? I'm going to do a pirouette. Well, who could ever say who did a pirouette? That's unknowable. Yeah. And I just assumed that um, the things I was participating in, the clubs, balls, rings, whatever, that those had just been around literally forever. Nobody knew where they could come from. It's so old. It's untraceable. It's unknowable. And I'm just participating in this thing that's always been there. It's always been established. It's always just been this thing that I'm doing. And I'm just one more person doing it. That's one thing I thought when I was younger. I'll take a little bit different track than you did, though, because... Uh, the other thing I thought was when I started off, so I got into juggling through unicycling and unicycling is um, part of that culture is you do competitions. You'll meet and you'll have races like you would do running track races, but you're on a unicycle or then you would also compete with some sort of, they would call it artistic freestyle, which is like you could think of figure skating. So everything based around unicycle culture outside of just like your local club where you would ride for fun. If you would meet other people formally at a festival or convention, you're competing. This competition thing was just permeated the, the, the whole culture. So I grew up with that. And uh, so then when I got, I discovered the IJA after unicycling that first year in 84, uh, around 80, uh, you know, around 85, end of 85 into juggling with the IJA, uh, they also had competitions at the IJA. And so I was like, oh, of course, I'm, I'm competing with unicycles. Of course, I'm going to compete with the juggling. And I think one thing that's definitely changed over the course of when I was younger till now is my understanding of what those competitions actually mean. 
and I want to be very careful with how I say this because I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't, I'm not saying this in a negative way, but it's, it, it's hard. It, maybe on the surface, I just have to qualify it. But basically, when I was young and I did those juggling competitions, I thought they meant something. I thought they meant something more than just to our group, to our juggling community. I thought it, you know, I was I was eight years old, man. I was, I was like, oh, I'm going to go win the gold medal. And that's going to be somehow... Uh, relevant to the rest of the world right like in the bigger picture like outside of the juggling community i thought there was some sort of yeah established credentials or weight that this that these awards were were giving me and uh now that i'm older i've come to realize that well it's just it's just all of us in a room together and then we have a little friendly competition and somebody happens to win that day it's not it's not larger than that it's not smaller than that and that, in one way, that's why I say I wanted to be careful with how I say this, because I don't think that's a bad thing, to be honest. Like for me, that's actually a great thing because I appreciate it more. I understand how fragile it is. I understand how special that moment is. It's just us in this room. It's just us here having this competition and we happen to all love juggling and we happen to care about enough that we could have a competition and kind of award each other and support each other and have this camaraderie. And I, I think about it a lot where, I mean, we can take my, maybe maybe the all-time uh, most important Cirque du Soleil show, which, well, okay, we don't have to get into, the, into that debate right now, but let's say one of them is Mystere. And Mystere was, it's such a, when I first saw Mystere, you know, almost 30 years ago, um, it was such an unknowable, mysterious thing, like, I couldn't even comprehend what I was watching. I couldn't even tell you. If you asked me when I first saw the show what was happening in front of my eyes, I couldn't even, I didn't have language to tell you to describe what was happening. And since the show's opened and over the years, and I've seen the show uh, 76 times now, uh, I've gotten to be friends with the performers. I've got to meet the cast. I've got to go backstage. I've got to perform on that stage. Uh, and so I've started to uncover these secrets. Now I know exactly what I'm watching to the point where I know the person's name. I just had lunch with them the day before when I see them on stage. But this uncovering of the mystery of the Mystere show, uh, it hasn't made me like it less. It made me like it more. Because back when I first started watching the show, it was incomprehensible to me. Uh, like how amazing and how weird and crazy and everything it was that I didn't even, I didn't even know what I was watching. But now I still think the show is incredible and I know it's not some sort of mystery miracle. I know it's just people like me. It's just people like you and me on stage doing these things every night. And that makes it even more incredible because there isn't a secret that I'm missing. There's no secret formula that, because when I saw the show 30 years ago, I'm like, whoa, I don't understand the world. Mm -hmm. I don't get what I'm watching. There must be some mechanism here that's hidden that I just cannot know and that I cannot interface with. But now I know it's just people, you know, it's just people with ideas going on stage. And I go, oh, I'm also a person. I can also have ideas. And I'm not saying I can make something as good as Mystere, but I'm saying I ha I'm on this, I'm in the same conversation. At least I understand my position now. Mm. Same thing with Michael Motion's work. I just go, man, Michael Motion, it's, it's the best juggling that's ever been done. Mm. Uh, not, nothing even close to it in terms of my, what I'm interested in. And then I just go, hmm. Michael must be a special guy. He must just be a complete different human being than me. But I have this Michael Motion project uh, the past few years. I've interviewed every single person he's ever worked with. And over the course of those interviews, I go, oh, Michael's a human being. He is 
probably the smartest person I've ever met. I'll give him that. And he definitely has like a photographic memory or, or something like this. I mean, he has superlatives in the area of human, maybe achievement or intelligence, mm -hmm. but he's still a human. So kind of uncovering and unlocking all the mystery of his work of how it was created and hearing the very, on one way, in, in one way, very um, everyday down to earth stories about like, how was the triangle made? How were the crystal balls made? I go, oh, wait a second. This is just a dude. This is just a guy who's trying his best to make stuff. That's like me. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish his work for me. It makes it even crazier because look at where, because I'm in the same position he is now. We're on the same level. He's not in some sort of mysterious universe, right? And it's the same thing with the IJA. So when I was like eight years old, I go, oh, wow, the IJA, it's this magical, huge force in the world. It's this, it's this, it's like a, a serious established institution that's in one way unknowable. Who knows who founded it? Who knows who runs it? It's just people in the office. There's an office in my mind. There's like an office, right? Because that's how the world works. I, I look at Pepsi Cola and I look at the IJA. I go, oh, they're big companies. How can I know? I don't know how the world works. But now that I'm older, I know a little bit more about how the world works. And I know the IJA, it's just, it's just us. It's just the people who are in it do you know trying to do our best generation to generation and uh that doesn't make it less for me it makes it way more meaningful like than just getting some gold medal and being like oh yeah i got the gold medal i'm number one which is not reality right yeah so yeah it sounds like you you had you imagined some greater magical machinery that oversaw these things right but then you realize that no such machinery exists it's yeah. just it's just people and you could be one of them it's a, it's it's obtainable it's achievable it's yeah. something you can actually do it's not something that's beyond my capabilities i'm not saying i can do it or i'm good enough right but i mean in theory i have the same chance as anybody else in terms of how the ija functions and what it stands for and what it can mean and what it can do and how to help people and yeah. things like that it humanizes it somehow i think i've had similar like more and more how should i say experiences of the body could towards juggling technique like you see juggling and it's like unimaginable what that would feel like to execute right like i remember before i could juggle five balls like and i tried it once or twice you know and it just felt impossible that it was just like i wonder what it is about me that needs to kind of click for that to lock into place uh, it's more of an abstract feeling than than what what you're talking about, but it, it's something about just just the physical experience of juggling that I think when I was younger I was just like oh what is that feeling like? But then when you get older and you, you know I learned some of those things and you have that feeling, then it's not magical anymore. Well, if following along with that, exactly. That's a great point. I have the same thing, but maybe in a, I can say in a little different way of when I was younger, I thought I was learning individual tricks. Hey, I'm going to learn seven balls. I remember being in Akron, you know, 1987 with Sean Blue at the, lo at the festival in 1988, the local festival after the IJA there. And we were each working on seven balls. And like Sean had a run of like, I don't know, almost a hundred catches. And I had a run of like, I don't know, 28 or 44 catches or something. And we were both just laughing. 
we were giddy with excitement. We were just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we did so many catches. <laughs> and we were just like almost euphoric that we were progressing on seven balls. But that, but, but I kind of reserved that for seven balls. I was like, oh, I'm just getting good at seven balls. But now that I'm older, I understand that techniques are translatable and, and, and it's just a body of skills that you're building. It's not, I'm not just learning seven balls. I'm also learning how to learn seven balls. Mm. I'm not just learning a specific trick. I'm learning a system of how I personally can achieve skills, right? So it's like, a, it's just a broadening of scope of awareness. And nowadays, I mean, and I also remember thinking that whatever I was working on specifically with juggling, okay, I got to learn this four ball you know, shower, high, low trick, or I have to learn this other very specific technique that that was kind of the only value that of the time I was putting into that trick. And now I realize that just from, just from having all the years of experience, I go, Oh man, that process of learning that high, low shower with four balls that unlocked some sort of understanding of how I, my body physically learns, you know, anything. And then I can just instantly kind of translate and plug that into something new. And what the result being that let's just let's just kind of wrap that idea up and say that when I was younger, I was intimidated by certain tricks. And now that I'm older, I'm not intimidated. I'm not saying I can do them, but I'm, I don't think it's a mystery of like, oh, how am I going to learn that one? It's like, well, it's how I learned everything else. And there you start to find a pattern when you're older. You can look back and see where mm. you've walked before. And that's pretty easy then to apply to a new situation, even though you've never been in that new situation before. It's like a different, yeah, different feeling. Right. Uh, <clears throat> do you think that, I mean, this reminds me of a story that I heard about Anthony Gatto, that his, his father, Nick, or his stepfather, Nick, didn't want him to see <laughs> yeah. other jugglers right. so that Anthony would, uh, if he saw them, then he thought that Anthony would develop sensibilities in terms of where barriers technical barriers were located in juggling yeah something about you know when when, when anthony started out that it was uh I mean, he was doing quote-unquote incredible things compared to everybody else who was juggling at the time right technically and then people and then he started to meet some jugglers who after a while would come up to him and be like oh that's incredible oh my goodness that's so impossible what you're doing um and maybe and again this is complete conjecture but I think, you know, because you have young children, so do I, and you see there's an age of consciousness of kind of awareness of your environment. So maybe it was at some point when Anthony was whatever, however old he was when he started, four or five or six or whatever, um, that was fine that some jugglers could come and be like, that's crazy. Um, but then when he got to be seven or eight years old, you start to have a different development of your mind and you go, oh, wait, what? <laughs> wait, what are you saying? <laughs> um, and that's maybe when Nick was like, oh, Anthony shouldn't know these things are crazy. I mean, the other the, the famous story that I heard that I love is the first time Anthony did eight rings on stage. Mm. Do you remember that one? So Tell it, please. Yeah, so no, Anthony had been doing eight rings in, in rehearsal, like in practice every day. It wasn't like he had never done it before. But Nick, and again, this is me filling in blanks in my head, but just to say, as far as I understand, Nick uh, was thinking like, well, if I tell Anthony he's going to do eight rings in the show tonight, he's going to worry about it. He's going to maybe, and then maybe mentally he'll, he'll stress out and mess it up or something. Um, so then, you know, that next night in the show, uh, Anthony does the seven rings like normal and he goes to put them back. And then Nick's just like, Hey Anthony, here's another ring. 
and he's on stage and then Anthony's like, oh, okay. And then he just takes the ring and just does the eight rings without any thought, right? There's no buildup of, of messing it up. I mean, that's pretty, that's what you were talking about. Right, right, this right, kind right, of mental, right. mental relationship. Yeah. To the no, I, I wonder, like, I mean, there's so many, so many things to say about Anthony and so many things to like think about Anthony and think about these different moments. Like we were thinking about ourselves, like what changed when we were young to when we were old in terms of our relationship to juggling. And then we have this kind of epic guy, Anthony Gatto, who's the greatest juggler that ever lived in many regards. And like, it's, it, yeah, one thing to think about in terms of him is like, how did that change for him? And we also have, like, we can see there's some documentation of him. So we can also look at how he progressed and what, like, look from the outside, what changed for him, you know, from when he was younger and mm. as he got older. But um, yeah, that would be fun to talk about. I just don't, don't know exactly which I have one end to start in. Should yeah, I, should go I go it. with that? Yeah. No, but I think one uh, really incredible thing about we had Anthony Gatto. So let's first like situate him. So f- when, when did he retire? Oh, I don't, you it, can't you can't ask any question about recent history. I have no idea. Okay. Uh, <laughs> le, yeah, we should know that. Let's say it was two thousand and let me fourteen. You can think while I say something. Okay. okay. <laughs> Maybe more more useful. Yeah. No, no. But you, you think of the year while I say something slightly more useful because it's it's not quite a joke that we don't know when he retired. It, not entirely because it was kind of like unclear like it was kind of ambiguous right and that's part of the thing of anthony is like his story kind of trailed off at some point right i mean in the later years of his uh public persona you can say i don't know he was posting videos on youtube a lot and he had like a little podcast thing and a he little had the school for a little bit yeah he offered an online school he had some beef with Jason Garfield going back and forth with videos online and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were these were public public traces of his existence, right? At least in the juggling sphere. And then, you know, at one point it just kind of dried up. It just kind of ran out. Um, I don't think that's exactly when he retired, but I don't know. So it's kind of, I mean, even I, I should know kind of the range of years there, but mm-hmm. in general, it's not so easy to pinpoint, I think. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard because he, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we have we have the unfinished story kind of because kind of the peak of his his presence in the juggling world I think was around the time when he had that juggling forum the Anthony Gatto yeah the Gatto forum yeah. the Gatto forum and like I have a friend of mine who's very enthusiastic about Gatto specifically and he all, he pointed this out to me that you know let's say in basketball there was a discussion forum about basketball. And it was run by Michael Jordan. <laughs> and you could go on there and you could ask Michael a question. Right. And it is quite likely that he would go on there and answer you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah. And that's the situation that we were in, in juggling for that span of time, those five years or whatever it was that that forum was around. Yeah. And I just think that's crazy to think about in retrospective. Yeah. That it says so much about juggling, like how big it is or how small it is mm. and how we relate to people within the culture. And yeah, it's just wild to think about that, that <laughs> we have this person because 
Anthony Gatto, he really fits. I really think he fits this um, uh, this hierarchy of 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 accomplishment where you have someone on first place and then you have nobody on second place, <laughs> nobody on third place, and then maybe you have someone on fourth. Right? It was really like that for a while with with uh, with Anthony, and because he, he was just so much better. And uh, th- that he would have this discussion for him. You could go on there and ask him things, whatever you wanted. Yeah, it's just it's just well, wild. If you want to take that Michael Jordan basketball forum example, you could also talk about in this fantasy analogy of why the forum closed. Because from what I understood was that you know users were going on the on the Gato forum and they were having some sort of discussion, but they would frequent frequently get in an argument with Anthony about how. I don't know how juggling worked or how chicks worked or how technique worked. And uh, from what I understood, again, I don't know how public all this was or even how aware of it I was at the time. But uh, I mean, eventually Anthony just pieced out and closed the forum because he's just like, hey, this is like because people people were going on the forum and literally saying, hey, I only started juggling a week ago, but my voice is equally uh, as valid as your voice. And for sure, as humans, absolutely, or whatever, right? But if you want to talk about like juggling 11 rings while bouncing a ball in your head, well, I guess Anthony might have a couple things you want to listen to. So if you, it's like you go on the Michael Jordan's basketball forum and like, hey, what's the best, best way to do a free throw? I just found out about basketball yesterday. And then Michael's like, oh, you should really bounce the ball three times before you do the free throw. And you're like, I don't think so. You should just bounce it once. And you should listen to me because like, I'm also a person. And it's like, yeah, sure. You can also have a civilized discussion. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But like in that case, in terms of technique and stuff, I don't know. I'd bounce the ball three times. Let's see what Michael has to say here. And it was also probably, and again, I'm just, I'm guess, I'm speculating. It's probably just had also to do with just a lack of respect, right? For Anthony and, and Anthony perceiving that respect of like, hey, wait a second. I'm offering to have this discussion with people and they're just not respecting me. So why am I bothering with my yeah. time, I guess? Yeah. I mean, in terms of in terms of you saying Anthony, you know, being first place and there's no second or third place and all that. There's a couple of things I'd like to try to position as Anthony in terms of the in terms of the world or the flow of time, which is going to be really hard to do because I'm not an anthropologist or like I don't study pop culture or all these other things I should probably know to try to say this. But first of all, if we just look at juggling, um, I mean, Anthony was in the lineage of great jugglers, let's say. You did have Ristelli, Ignatov, Gatto. You could draw some sort of comprehensible line between those things, right? Um, and then you go, yeah, but he was so much better technically technically than Ignatov. But on the other hand, if you look at generationally how juggling progresses with its technique, I think he was in line. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. He was <laughs> infinitely better than, than Ignatov. But Ignatov started, you know, in this year and Anthony was born this year and yeah. the techniques makes leaps and bounds. We see that even today in different in different ways. Um, so like it wasn't incomprehensible that like you could go, oh yeah, great juggler, Ign- Sergei Ignatov, next great juggler could be Gatto, right? Mm. And definitely there was those, there was that flow of names that used to get mentioned more and still you hear it a little bit. It's like you start to talk about who were the great jugglers of the past, you go, Ristelli, Francis Brunn, uh, Ignatov, uh, Gatto, or whatever, right? And depending on who's telling the story, they'll add their name into that list too. We won't mention that here. 
but you know what I mean. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but I think another thing with Anthony is that I think a lot of people started to compare Anthony to other jugglers that they saw videos of. Yeah. Okay. You know, you you knew you saw Anthony Gatto's act from a performance, right? Yeah. And then you set that next to someone else's juggling video that they edited and put on YouTube. Yeah, the instant jugglers. Right, and then it's like, <laughs> oh, the, this is better juggling or something like that. But if we narrow that down to just numbers, I'm I'm really curious what you, if you compare performing a high number of, of uh, objects in toss juggling to compare compare that to making a video of of that <laughs> how do you how do you would you do that comparison in terms of like skill who who are you more impressed by okay the person who like juggles seven balls you know every night on stage or the person who submits a video where they qualified nine let's say okay but hold on hold on now <laughs> there's a couple of different answers to that first of all this is a little tangent but now we're here so i think it's funny to say I mean, I'm the wrong person to ask about this because um, we can go back to that that gig I did for uh, the launch of Viagra, and the the the, the whole story is that uh, I was juggling on top of a plinth that was about six feet across as a circle, and it was about twelve feet high or something, and we were using silicone balls, and we had three balls each. It was me, Steve Gotts, and Pat McGuire, and so standing inside a six a six foot circle. Uh, which is two other people juggling already. There's not room and then I'm afraid of heights and I was getting paid so much money that you could divide my salary because it was a minute long performance So if you took my salary, I was getting paid and divided it by 60 for 60 seconds in a minute The amount of money I was getting paid every second for that show was more than what I would normally make in a in one performance for a week of work uh, where, where I was performing before that right so you have this immense pressure of like, I'm getting paid all this money. So there's pressure to justify that, you know, I, I have to prove that I'm worth that money. And uh, then also it was for 20,000 people live in the MGM Grand Arena in Las Vegas. And uh, basically the, the first thing we did in the act was I should, I should, I should do, we were each gonna do a little bit of a solo trick to establish that we were each uh, cool jugglers and then we were gonna do some juggling together or something. And I was the first person, so I should go, I should kind of step up to the front of the circle and uh, do a three up, a three ball, three up pirouette, which to be honest at the time for me, it was like, it was just like breathing. I mean, it was just like nothing to even care about. Like, oh, three up pirouette with three balls. It's uh, the most basic thing you could do in one way. But I remember having so much pressure and being so stressed out that when I went to do the three up pirouette, I had a bunch of thoughts in my head. And the first one was like, ah, I should just do a one up pirouette. If I do the three up pirouette, the balls are going to hit, like they're going to collide in the air and bounce off into the arena. And I'm maybe I'm going to fall off the plinth and, and get hurt and land on somebody in the audience and whatever. Um, oh, and just, oh, and I should, I should preface this by saying right before we went on stage, the CEO of the company came over and said, you know, this is the first time we've ever gotten the whole Viagra company together in one place. And we're basing, we're, we're betting the future of our company on the success of this product launch, basically. Um, and this, and this product has the, the chance, it has the potential to change people's lives 
which is like just another heightening of like drama of like this miracle drug. I mean, we didn't know what the drug did. We never heard of it before and nobody had, you know, it was the launch of the, of the drug. And so then he, he literally said the phrase, you know, he said all these things about, we've never been together before. It's like the, the future of the company and blah, 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 change people's lives. And he says, so go out there and fly high and just have fun. <laughs> you know? like, like it's just, it's just insane, right? Like that's just the opposite thing you want to tell someone to like, so just go fly high and you know, just have fun, man, no big deal. So I was just so stressed out. I was, I was shaking and I was like, I better do the one up pirouette instead of the three up. And then I thought, well, if I only do the one up pirouette, it means that I'm in over my head in this situation. Like I, I, I can't mentally cope with, with where I'm at. And so I better not um, start to crumble. Cause if I, if I only do the one up, then I'm probably gonna also not even be able to do the cascade, right? Like I came and walk, I will like freeze in place. And I don't know, like, I, you know, I can't even breathe. So I said, no, 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 just do the three up pirouette, just like stick to the plan. And uh, what happened was uh, I blacked out. And I don't mean I blacked out and fell over or fainted. I mean, I have no memory of what happened. Like I mentally checked out of the situation. And then I, when I woke up, I was backstage uh, with Pat and Steve. And I was just like, uh, s like, sorry for screwing everything up. And I was kind of surprised I wasn't like, I'd have a broken leg from falling off the thing or something. And they're just like, what do you mean screwing it up? It was, it was amazing. It was, we did great and it was dropless and, <laughs> and like no mistakes. And I, and I, know any, I haven't, I still haven't told either of them to this day that like I blacked out. Uh, and have no memory of what I did, but apparently I kept juggling. I did the pirouette and I nailed it and we didn't drop anything. Do you know if this performance is on video somewhere? I don't think it is. I mean, this was really, again, right before the edge, the cusp of, I think like phone cameras and digital cameras and internet. So it was a little bit before that stuff. It was like, mm. you know, early 2000, 2000 or 2001 or something like that. Yeah. And so um, I'm totally the wrong person to ask about like, Hey, what do you think is harder doing seven balls yeah. on, on TV or doing nine balls on a one-off video, like a video thing. Um, and I also think our friend Peter, um, who did, um, Sweden's got talent and he got to the finals. He did a really good job with his routines. And then I'm watching Peter at home on TV on the finals and he's there doing his five club cascade. And I'm like, okay, I can imagine doing a five club cascade because I did the America's got talent finals uh, as a showcase with absinthe with with uh, Pat, uh, Patrick Elner and Tony Pezzo and we did five clubs in that shoot and I vowed to never again do I mean it was funny after the Viagra gig and I blacked out I said I will never do this in my life and that really changed my life in terms of pushing me on a path towards something else mm -hmm. other than just coming and doing tricks for money because I, I obviously couldn't handle the pressure and then there I was all those years later um, because of a technicality and a contract and I had to do <laughs> America's Got Talent and we had to do Five Club Cascade. So I could, I could imagine Peter doing the Five Club Cascade on live TV in Sweden, but then he ends with a scissor catch. And I'm just sitting at home and I almost like pass out or vomit or something. I was like, no, man, because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to drop. And I'm like, I would just not have the guts or the stamina or the strength to just like do that scissor catch. Um, I would just collect, right? You know what I mean? Like, why, why, why push it? Like, why bother? Um, but Peter's there, like nailing it. Like, oh, since yeah, catch, okay, I'll do another trick. I'm like, Ugh. so I'm, I'm pretty phobic to those kinds of situations. Mm. But what your question does bring up uh, to get back to that is, you know, the question is, hey, would you rather see someone doing seven balls dropless every single night in a show, like let's say ten shows a week, 
um, versus somebody on a video who just does a nine ball qualify. And now what you're talking about is some sort of consideration for consistency mm. in terms of how we judge technique, right? It's not just the superlative uh, who did who did one more than the other, but it's also who can consistently do one more than the other. Mm. And I think that's a pretty interesting, uh, you know, quality that that it's hard to quantify. Yeah. But there is some sort of unconscious, uh, uh, would you say, relationship to that quality of consistency that we we kind of carry in ourselves as a juggling community, but nobody really has words or ever talks about it. I think. Right. Yeah. But I think that that it's something like that comparison that was the what people tried, how people tried to bring Anthony down, I think, was very much located in that. No, I think. Yeah. Okay, But I think it more went like it went like this. And this is the other thing. This is the other half of kind of situating Anthony. I wanted to try to do. So I wanted to try to situate him in some sort of lineage of Rastelli, Brun. Ignatov, whatever. And you can also throw in other names if you want. Billy Hour. You can say Popovich. If we get to more recent times, like in, in Anthony's era, right? So you, we can have some other names in there. But basically, the other side of that journey for him is, and this is really a stretch for me to talk with any authority, but before the internet, we had what I've seen some people refer to as a monoculture. And what that means is we had three TV channels. So as a collective society, we, we had more of a cohesive, at least experience of the world. I'm not saying a more accurate or truthful because those three channels we had are still being funneled through certain you know, outlets or whatever for perspectives, okay? But, but um, you had those things called, like you ever heard of a water cooler show? You know no, what that is? No. So a water cooler show would be like, you know, the TV show Friends. Oh, okay. I get it. No, yeah. it's what everybody watches. So when the you next get to day work, at the office, yeah. you lo- what do you think about last You go to the water cooler, so, yeah. you get your cup of water, and then you see, you know, Sally there and Betty and John. Mm. You're like, oh, hey, did you see when Ross and Rachel, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And the reason you can say that is because that's the show everyone watched because there was not one channel, but there were five channels, but that was the one good thing on at that moment, at that night. Right. And that's kind of my understanding of what more a monoculture means. And so you could say that Anthony really existed in the monoculture more than the fragmented. I don't know the, what's the opposite of that, but the Internet kind of fractured the culture. Right. The Internet made it possible to have everything available all the time and all of your, your niche interests could be pursued. And so um, it was kind of the fracturing of the conscious, the collective consciousness of the world. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> crazy phrase to say, but you know, you, I, th- I hope you know what I mean. And so I think what happened was this, at least in my observation. So I'm old enough that when I started going to juggling festivals, Anthony still went to juggling festivals. <laughs> mm. And in fact, uh, that's not entirely, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's true, but only from a certain perspective, because even before I started juggling and going to festivals, he had, he had quit going to festivals. But what had happened was the IJA may, said, hey, in 1989, we're going to have this juggling festival and we would like to have Anthony Gatto come and hang out and perform and whatever. How are we going to do that? He doesn't go to festivals anymore. And, I'm, and again, this is conjecture right now, but I think it has something to do with that thing we talked about earlier where Anthony had won in, in 1986 the individual competition, the seniors in the IJA. And then I'm not sure 
I think already back then I've heard some rumors here and there that already Anthony's kind of felt like a freak or ostracized because he was so talented and when he hung out with the other jugglers they would just stare at him or mm. they wouldn't treat him like a normal person right so he was already like oh I don't really want to hang out with this crowd they make me feel weird and also maybe it was partly Nick being like let's not have Anthony hang out with jugglers um, let's just keep him you know on the side so he doesn't know what he's doing is impossible uh and so then in 1989, they made, uh, the IJA made an, uh, an award called the Award of Excellence. And then they said, they called up Anthony and they said, hey, the IJA has this new award. It's called the Award of Excellence. And guess what? You're the first recipient by coincidence. <laughs> but I mean, it wasn't by coincidence. It was just by design. It was literally to get Anthony to go to the festival, which worked. He went in 1989 and he went to a couple of festivals after that, like 1991 in St. Louis when Ignatop was there and and some other and years later too he went also prim maybe 98 or whatever i don't i don't know i hate it when people get the Prince years 98, wrong I, I think yeah but i i don't know if he was there on that one but i and i really hate mm. it when people get years wrong so i i should not uh, attempt things i don't know but he was there in 91 and i was there too mm. and so what happened was he he went to some festivals for a, a little bit but especially when internet culture came out and youtube really popped and really started to become a thing Anthony had stopped going to festivals by then. And he had kind of said, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm done going to festivals. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't get anything out of it. People just treat me like a freak. It's not fun um, to hang out with the jugglers who, yeah, who just stare at me. <laughs> and so all, the, all of the newer jugglers who started juggling around the same time that YouTube came out, for example, they had never met Anthony. They'd never seen him at a festival. And many people hadn't seen him perform live. I mean, unless you went to Vegas and saw him with Melinda, First Lady of Magic, or these other shows he was doing. Um, and he also had retired for a while there too, like for a couple years in Vegas. So there was a whole generation of people who hadn't grown up watching Anthony live and or been exposed to him in any other way. Maybe they'd seen a video of him, but now we're talking about video versus video, right? And so then... Um, these new jugglers, they were just like, oh yeah, I can just film this trick until I nail it and throw it on YouTube and get a bunch of respect for it. And so why would they not compare Anthony to that same, hold Anthony to that mm. same standard, right? And I think that's where it started to get um, a little bit confusing, this conversation of who's better than who. And I remember there was the whole, a whole generation of people while Anthony was really in the background for a whole new generation of jugglers, Vova Galchenko came out is kind of the new uh, popular juggler that people that people were exposed to. Yeah. And then people just started saying, oh, but you know, Anthony's doing seven clubs in his act, but look at this video of Boba doing seven clubs. He does like a hundred catches and a pirouette or whatever. Mm. And yeah, Boba did some cool stuff, but like it's so, I had a journalist call me. There was this journalist uh, from Canada writing an article about Anthony Gatto after he retired or whatever. Mm. And they were trying to make some sort of uh, I think dramatic beef between Vova and Gatto and somebody had given them my name as a reference that they should talk to me about this fight. And they're just like, yeah, but what do you think? Who's better? You know, Vova, he does the same tricks as Anthony. And then I remember in that interview saying, yeah, but Gatto's doing it, you know, 10 times a night in, in Kuza with Cirque du Soleil now. So like, it's not even a conversation. You can't compare these things. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess it's just your perspective. I mean, I asked you the other day, you know, what do you think has been the highest technique, like the highest technical juggling achieved? And you just immediately were like, 
what do you mean? Like, in what way are we talking? Was it like this or like this? Or do you just mean like, you know, or whatever you said, the context, like what context are we talking about? Right. Yeah, I don't remember my answer there specifically, but I guess you could think about like, it's again this problem of comparison, right? We're talking toss juggling or we're talking something with balancing combined with something else something you did the first time in your life versus or the one time in your life versus the, the thing you do every day yeah and i mean if if we just want to dive into that i mean that's just why i think the conversation is so hard it's so hard for me to have this conversation in terms of how good was anthony and i know others have tried to articulate it before and try to explain people to people who haven't experienced anthony in person or seen his act or seen him practice but just the level of consistency, it doesn't make, it's it's hard to even talk about it in the same conversation with anybody else on the planet. Because mm. Anthony didn't just do those tricks uh, once on video, he did them basically, basically every day in practice, right? Up to a certain point. I mean, sometimes he'd pull out the special, the 12 rings or something as yeah. a one-off here or there. But I mean, he did 12 rings more than once and I don't think he would do it daily, but. yeah. He, just his consistency it's hard to quantify consistency i think in our normal everyday juggler yeah conversation no totally uh the other the other thing that i find interesting about anthony i mean there's many things but the other thing i wanted to talk about was that anthony anthony continuously insisted on his performance being an artistic gesture and not necessarily an athletic one. Yeah. I just think, find that really fascinating that he was at that athletic peak, but he still insisted on uh, that it was something that, yeah, something artistic. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that. Like, what do you think about his performance in terms of, in terms of it being this, um vessel for something yeah creative or, or, or artistic and aside from the athletic aspect of it oh man yeah there's a lot of factors here to 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 dive into that um i think they're all kind of tangled up and it's it's going to be hard to figure it out but i think a lot of factors are at play that hopefully i can i can talk, tell you about one is just that it goes back to that monoculture idea i don't have a better name for it but the time before the internet Anthony came, I think Anthony was one of the, like he was at the end of an era. He, he was one of the last people who, I'm going to say, I'm going to call that era show business if I can. You know, Dan Holtzman's got that podcast, Drop Everything. I love listening to it. He, he does, he interviews some great people on there. And Dan often talks about his own personal experience where he says, you know, when he interviews younger jugglers, especially he'll say, Ah, oh, but you know, the work dried up. There's not really that much work anymore. And, the, and what he's meaning is the type of work he used to do. So yeah, Johnny Carson, that was a TV show. Well, Johnny Carson's not on TV anymore. Mm-hmm. And the Raspini brothers, they did Johnny Carson, I think, twice. And so sure, from that perspective, if you're going like, hey, if I look at my career and I say, what things was I able to accomplish? And then I look at your current situation, I look around the, the landscape, I go, what options are available to you? I understand completely what Dan is saying in terms of the opportunities he was afforded. They're no longer possible for you. So, and Dan is not maybe, and, and completely, he's completely valid from that perspective. A hundred percent agree with him. The thing is there's a, been a bunch of new 
avenues that I've probably developed since Dan has been perf like performing with, with Barry, with Sweeney Brothers. For example, I could say like Josh Horton or Taylor Glynn doing Instagram or YouTube, you know, sort of influencer style opportunities, just to say like, that's a very easy, you know, social media ch tact to say like, yeah, Dan didn't have access to that when he was doing Johnny Carson, there was no Instagram. Okay, cool. So Gatto was the end of an era. He was the tail end of what I'm gonna call show business. Cause his dad, Nick, you know, worked with Albert Lucas's dad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had three Gatos, yeah. the Los Gatos yeah, trio. Exactly. The Los Gatos, there you go, yeah. yeah. So they had an act which was in show business. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was squarely in show business. And we had this kind of monoculture where, yeah, the three TV channels, these were the TV channels, this was the newspapers, these were the magazines you could read, and here's the shows you could see. It was very, Ah, you, I don't know, I don't have good language Yeah, for this. no, but I, I get what you're saying. It's established, like, here's the three places you can perform. Yeah. You know, you go to you go to Vegas, you can perform at the Sahara, you can be in Jubilee, you can, mm -hmm. you know, these are the, it's, and nowadays uh, with the internet, it just fractured all the culture where you can kind of make your own little niche here that just didn't exist before. So you don't have the masses, the big mass audience, you have a very niche audience, but you can also carve out a space for yourself that just didn't exist. You're empowered, you have the tools, we have cameras on our phones, we have editing software everywhere. So we, we don't need a TV station to make a broadcast, et cetera. We can make a podcast, blah, 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 blah. So Gatto had Nick um, guiding him from, from Nick's career as an acrobat uh, to, to also, I'm sure, giving a foot in the door to these certain show business dynasties and legacies yeah. Uh, and so I really see a lot of Anthony, um, a lot of his career is kind of the, the tail end of that kind of dying out. And he, but he still got those opportunities. So he had some sort of like, I don't know what to say, attitude or not in a bad way, but like he got some values from that kind of show business uh, uh, place where where he, he was still in that lineage of, of, the, mm. of the older older performers. Which me and you, we are not in that. Okay, I see what you're saying. And one of those values in that context was that it was an artistic expression. I think so. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I think uh, because that's what was partly valuable, maybe to that market. Ah, oh, this is it's. Ah, I, I have an intuition about that. It's hard to it's hard to articulate it, but I think yeah, you you, you I mean, Francis Brun was a great artist. There's yeah. something about that that you wanted to be an artist. And I think it also also comes down to um, just wordplay. There's another level of that. I mean, he's called a circus artist. He's a variety artist. You yeah. just have that literal word artist. So I think he also maybe got, I don't say stuck on that, but that's a component too. We, we, we would call him like, hey, Anthony, what do you do? Oh, I'm a circus artist. And I remember that the reason I bring that up is that was an argument on his forum. Do you remember that thread? I don't. There was a whole thread on his forum where he talked about being a circus artist. And they, it, it devolved into a very basic conversation about the word artist. Mm. And I'm not sure it was the most inspired conversation or nuanced or enlightening. It was just kind of like, hey, this, this title has the word artist in it. And artist means art. And I, so therefore, blah, blah. like, mm. this is a very one-to-one -one mapping. It's not a very nuanced you know, understanding of the definition. Mm. But I also remember then a step beyond that on the forum in that thread, in that discussion, Anthony said, um, 
No, but uh, because somebody said, ah, you're not an artist because you just do the same thing over and over and over again every single night. It's the same thing. You're not exploring anything. You're not expressing anything different. You're not growing. You're just this thing and that's not art or whatever. And we can we can leave that behind for now because what Anthony actually said is more fun to talk about. He said, no, 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 no. For me, every single night on stage is completely different. Every show is completely different. And then when I was younger, I think when I first read that thread, I couldn't understand what he meant. I was probably more in the mindset of like, what are you talking about? You do the exact same, you do the nine rings, you know, you like Danielle throws you the rings after, you know, Nick retired, so Danielle's there, your wife is throwing you the rings. You smack them on your hand, you smack them on your thigh. Da, 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 da. And then you do the nine rings, right? Like it's the same every night. But then Anthony went on that thread. He, he kept the conversation going. He was like, no, no, for me, like, you know, the person in the front row moves their leg, somebody coughs, somebody laughs, someone, you know, makes eye contact with me. They're wearing a red shirt. The next night, that person sitting there is wearing a blue shirt. That he, he had drilled down his act, the essence of that act so far into the, the minute details that he recognized the variations second to second on that act of like anything that was different in the room made that made for him made the entire experience alive every night but now i think in recent years looking back i, I thought about this uh, you know in the past few years and it's like i wonder if you have and i think this is a symptom of going back to that that show business lineage you would have like your albert lucas you'd have your your act that you do for 25 years and that's your act right you do that one act, it's, it's 12 minutes long or seven minutes long. You just do that same thing for 25 years. I would imagine, and I haven't done that with my life, but I could imagine that in order to get through that process, you have to drill it down to the level of like, well, the person sitting in row A, C3 is wearing a blue shirt today. And yesterday they were wearing a red shirt, right? You have to drill it down to that level of detail to, to to be engaged, right? And to not just check out and be like, yeah. oh, I'm gonna do this nine rings again. Um, so he was really trying to make a case and argument for saying that every single show I do is different, completely different yeah. for him mentally. And I don't think that's probably maybe literally entirely true, but I understand the sentiment he was trying to express with that statement. Yeah. Um, and if that's true on some level, then yeah, he is an artist. He's he identifies himself with an artist on that level of like i'm composing that level of the of the routine so he because he, he said you know i'll give a i'll give an extra pause i'll give an extra look to that person who's clapping more i'll take an extra mm. beat if i have to if they don't clap louder long enough if if i feel the rhythm i'm just making you know you see what i mean though kind of making up these little examples but he said he would he could change the pacing or he could change the breathing he could change these little like microscopic things to tune the act to make it perfect for that audience. Mm. I believe in that on one level. And again, you can, you, if you wanna zoom out and then start to say like, is that being an artist? And like on what level to what potential? That's another whole discussion maybe, but at least he on the inside really motivated some sort of concept that he was, that he was an artist. Yeah. Uh, one uh, funny r rumor that I've heard is that some company some big company that was willing to pay a lot of money called i think it was bill Giddes or someone like bill, bill Giddes, some 
IGA person and asked, we're doing this huge corporate event and we want the best juggler in the world. Hmm. And then this person said, well, then you should hire either Anthony Gatto or Michael Motion. Hmm. And then in the end, they hired Michael. Maybe it was the Motorola? No. Hmm. What was that? I just find that to be a uh, funny... Yeah. That that situation actually took place. Uh, you mean in terms of just like, how can you compare the two? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, we want the best juggler in the world. And they're like, okay, you want Michael or Anthony? It's so funny because I think you can have, I mean, obviously a subjective conversation about that. And you can definitely motivate is either one the best in the world but then your set of criteria is just so completely different from each other that how can you in the same breath like it would be hard to yeah it once that once the person asking the question researches gato or motion they come back and be like what do you wait wait what yeah it makes zero sense <laughs> like how did you how did you recommend these two people yeah <laughs> um no, that was pretty fun i didn't know that that's pretty fun yeah, but and also that they did. I, I wonder how they assessed it if they like looked at videos of both or right. they heard what they did. Mm-hmm. Oh, this one guy, yeah, he bounces balls in a triangle. Mm. Or you can get this guy, he juggles nine rings. And- no, but also, I mean, I mean, to take that to the extreme, isn't the conversation more, oh, I heard about this guy, he juggles only one ball. Mm. He's the best in the world and he does, he just uses one ball. He's so good. I mean, that, that was the Michael vibe for a while with the crystal ball. Yeah. That was the, I don't say marketing, but that was the conversation around it. This guy's the best in the world. He's so good. He only uses one ball mm. because he's so good, right? Like he doesn't need to use more. He's, he's the perfect, you know, the, the best juggler ever. And then Anthony is the opposite. He's the maximalist mm. of the minimalist and saying, yeah, he did, you know, 11 rings, the ball bounced on his head and pulled them down or whatever. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember, do you know, do you know the mime called Tony Montanero? Yes. I mean, he is the mime who invented the wall. Whenever you see somebody pretending that there's a wall, invisible wall in front of them by placing their hands on it, like a window pane, uh, that's Tony who made that up. And so I hung out with Tony, uh, bef- I got to hang out with him before he died, like for a few years, up in Celebration Bar and Theater in Maine. And I remember, <laughs> because Tony knew I was a juggler, so Tony would always come to me and say, you know, Jay, what I would do if I was a, if I was a juggler is I would first start with one ball and I would learn to th- I would learn to throw it perfectly, just perfectly. I would do the perfect throw with one ball and then I would move on to two. And I was just like, okay, Tony, like, I mean, I get it. I get what he means though. I mean, I'm, I'm joking now because it was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do that, but thanks. But I mean, I was also 18 when I met him as a punk, but, um, you know, I, I get, I get his vibe now, but just to say like, that is that conversation about like, I, if I was going to be a juggler, I was going to be the best in the world. I would start with one ball and I would throw it perfectly but perfectly. <laughs> so last question then, do you think that there will be uh, another Anthony? What would it, what would be required for there to be a juggler that appeared that you would be like, oh, okay, this guy is, this person is better than Anthony? Well, I've thought so much about that, que- that question, man. I thought about it in so many different ways for so many years. So when Anthony retired, I was really thinking, okay, who, who's going to be the next Anthony? There's going to be, I mean, for a while there, I thought like, yeah, there'll be, there'll be another Anthony coming along. I don't know why I, I, I don't know why I didn't observe this better when Anthony was still juggling, maybe because I just didn't pay enough attention because he was still there. I just always assumed there'd be another Anthony coming along. I think since then I've noticed a few things. 
I mean, one is just the fragility of the juggling culture and just how thin it really is. Just that is, it was a gift that we had Anthony <laughs> and it we just don't have the, what is it? The exponential power of numbers, uh, the critical mass just to pop out another Anthony, you know, every generation, right? Maybe, if, you know, like what's the global population of jugglers? This this topic comes up every once in a while. People try to quantify how many people in the world can juggle three balls or whatever it is. And then they also try to put different parameters on it. Like how many people make a living through juggling or how many people can juggle five balls, right? You've seen these lists and whatever. And it doesn't really matter. Um, let's say, I think at one point I saw in the past few years, somebody thought there was 10 million people in the world who could juggle three balls. Let's just say that's the number I remember seeing on Reddit or somewhere. It doesn't matter if, what, what it is. Uh, clearly, 10 million people in the world doing three balls, if that's the case, um, that's not enough to pop out another Anthony every sort of generation, right? And so what do you have to do? You have to add a zero on that, two zeros, three zeros on that to get a critical mass of just the law of averages <laughs> that one of those new jugglers is going gonna, is gonna to develop and 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 to the technical level that Anthony did, right? That's one thing I think about. It's just, again, this fragility of our culture of how thin we actually are in terms of our numbers. And like, we don't have that many people juggling. And so you don't just get a new Anthony, Anthony every, every new generation, uh, every new cycle of, or wave of jugglers who come along. Um, that's one thing I think about. The other thing I think about is, I watched his act not too long ago, I'd say like three or four months ago. And I was like, oh, I'm going to watch Anthony's act again. I haven't seen it maybe in a year or two. Like, let's just watch this for fun. And the first thing I started thinking was, you know, he starts with his five ball routine. Um, I guess in later years, he started with his back to the audience and he, he throws the head bounce ball up and does a half turn and then goes into the head bounce with the five balls, right? And, you know, you can, you can take just that trick, the, the, the head bounce with the five balls, and you can just look around the landscape of jugglers right now. Well, basically nobody's doing that trick. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's technically impossible. Um, I just think it's not a popular thing right now to do head bouncing, right? Again, he's from a different era of what, what were the techniques that were valued and what were the, you know, where, where did the lineage of his technique come from? Mm. Um, so I, just to, that's a good, you put that as an example. I heard that that was one of the things that Nick actually told him that you're going to do everything that the best juggler does, but there's going to be a ball bouncing on your head. I heard that too. Yeah, good good reminder. So then I was watching his act and he goes along and I'm like, well, this five ball routine, I remember when I was young seeing it being like, this five ball routine is incomprehensible. It is so hard. He's doing, oh my goodness, a half shower. Uh, the other hand's doing overhead throws and, the, and it's alternating, the one hand's doing alternating uh, behind the back throws, right? And I'm just like, that's not a trick anybody can do. But now I think I look at it a few months ago, I go, oh yeah, I could, I could probably name a few people who I think could probably do that trick. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was watching the act and I was like, oh man, this is, this is maybe, yeah, maybe we're at this era where the, te the global technique has kind of surpassed his act. I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it wasn't as good as I remember mm -hmm. in one way. But then he starts doing like seven ring with the head bounce and the pull down under the, under the, under the ball bounce. And you're just like, nobody can even come close to that in terms of consistency yeah i can point i think jack dinger can do it mm. i can maybe name a couple of people valentino maybe could do it right i can name a couple of people um earl swirl uh from australia earl shotford well what's his name from uh Ivsukevich? yeah pavel yeah exactly so we can name some people 
but definitely can't name somebody again in the same conversation with all the other stuff in the act yeah. and the consistency of night to night to nail it with with you know minimal mistakes and so um so as the routine went on along i was still like kind of blown away <laughs> by the technical level so that's one thing to say in terms of like will there be a new anthony it's like well he's still doing pretty good even though we have um crazy technical juggling by a lot of great jugglers these days um and so then the other way to look at it too is you can you can maybe point to individual tricks or techniques that anthony has done and you can maybe start to point to people who have done better than him but it's kind of fractured the landscape of of of, of who like it's not one person right it's like maybe his ball record has been broken by this person over here the club record has been broken by someone over there it's not the same person anymore and it's just it's not consistent anymore it's just an internet video or just i mean it's still great but it's it's not yeah it's a different conversation maybe that's just one thing i've i've, I've observed I, I i think about it a lot i'm like well yeah anthony's you know the peak of his technical juggling you see people come out and they do oh i did 10 balls and it beat anthony's record there's still some conversation to be had where we can't even we don't even really have a good word or language to talk about the consistency thing we talked about before we also don't really have a good understanding or articulation of the comp the comprehensiveness of his techniques that that they all resided in him that he wasn't just the best at clubs he was also the best at rings and the best at balls and i i'm going to say best now in a very easy way of just quantifiable numbers numbers are kind of whole and absolute i mean mathematics mm -hmm. eight is bigger than seven mm -hmm. i mean that's not subjective right so that all those things resided in one individual and then on top of that he was a performer and on top of that he was so incredibly consistent like i heard like for example i heard a rumor uh from a friend of ours that you know there's not very many tv shows out there a clips of tv shows with uh, sergey ignatov on the tv show have you seen a clip of sergey on tv no and do you, do you know why did you hear the story no because ignatov dropped a lot <laughs> so he couldn't go on tv mm. no no tv show could host him because he would drop a lot i've seen ignatov perform it's amazing he does a great show he drops mm. it doesn't matter i don't think drops are the thing that quantifies a good or bad performance up to a certain level. Like if you can carry the moment and you can do the, I mean, it's, it's the old Russian circus ending, you, you passing the clubs across the circus ring and you mess up two times yeah. on purpose and you nail it the third time to make it more dramatic. I'm, there's a whole dramaturgical arc there. Yeah. I get it. But you know, Anthony did TV shows and stuff. He just didn't drop. Yeah. There's another thing that I want to add also to Anthony's act and like, is there going to be another Anthony Gatto? And that, that is, I saw Anthony, I saw him live three times. And one of those times was in a huge convention hall. It was at FISM mm -hmm. in Stockholm. The Magic uh, The Magic World Championships yeah. in 2005. And it was in this huge convention hall. There was probably 2,000 people in there. And Anthony, uh, he was the second to last act. And he as the second he was done with the performance the entire audience 2000 people immediately rose to their uh, standing up and gave him a standing ovation hmm. and that's been like when i've seen anthony perform that's been like that was probably the strongest time but every time that you feel it in the audience that 
peep everybody who is who is here cares mm. and they care like quite a bit i'm sure anthony's done bad performances i'm sure i just haven't seen them <laughs> yeah but uh, right. those experiences they, they, it was really an excited state right mm. and i'm thinking about that every time i see one of these younger jugglers that I feel like, oh, this 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 is high technical skill here that I'm watching. Mm. But if I imagine that, what I'm seeing, and I'm putting that into that convention hall, I don't see the same outcome. That's, that's funny you say that. Maybe this is like a little bit of a different thing, but I think there's juggling I see, I mean, let's say technical juggling, that as a hobbyist, as a, just a practitioner of juggling technique, I see the juggling and I go, oh, I'm just gonna give up. <laughs> right? Like you see something, it's so good. You just go, I'll never achieve that. Like, I don't feel like juggling anymore. I'm done. But somehow when I saw Anthony juggle, it made me want to juggle. Yeah. And that's maybe the same quality you're talking about, right? Right. You there put, was something he really captured you. Well, so, I mean, I mean, uh, you saw him in that convention hall and had that effect. So I've seen him in Vegas uh, doing some late night strip shows, like topless reviews. And the reason I mentioned that is because clearly i mean that's the cliche but it's also true that's not the place you're going to go you, you're thinking you're going to go see a juggler right you're not going to go to a strip show or a topless review and just be like oh man hope that hope there's a good juggler tonight you, you're not that's not the the flavor of the experience i think that they're marketing just to say the least and so i saw uh, anthony in the middle you know of the show and just the audience was blown away they couldn't help but to be captured by the performance. That's what you were saying in this convention hall. Yeah, people just jumped to their feet. Yeah, and I and I, I what I wanted to say artistically, I don't think that was entirely located in the highly technical, tech, in the athletic abilities that he exhibited. I mean, there's another layer to those athletic abilities. It's like consistency. Then there's the there's the total package if it's all in one person, and there's also then just the apparent ease. Mm. I mean, you see a lot of the a lot of the jugglers who maybe technique. I mean, we can say Willie Colombioni has a very different aesthetical style of, of Anthony, whereas Anthony does the even when Anthony did eight clubs, man, it just looked like he was just juggling, you know, just effortlessly moving the arms and just it was clean and the pattern was solid. It it existed in the air. It was mm. tangible. And then you see somebody like Willie Colombioni who also achieved technically high results but a completely different style of effort and aesthetics and sort of cleanliness or like apparent struggle. I don't know, at least in catching the clubs. Yeah. And there's yeah, so you when you see him, it's like a miracle that they all landed in. That Willie yeah. could bear hug them, right? Yeah. Um, it's incredible, but it's, it's a complete, you get a completely different feeling. So again, when we talk about technique, about superlative technique of juggling, you can just go by the mathematical realities of like, I do 13 rings, you do 14 rings, so you win. Mm -hmm. but, that, the, but the conversation tends to spread a little bit deeper with more levels of like, yeah, yeah but uh, the routine, you know, the, the quality of the movement <laughs> with Anthony, it's, appear, it's apparently so effortless. And this idea of effortlessness, I guess, also uh, fuels the apparent mastery over the skill, right? Like if you can apparently effortlessly do that trick without seemingly to struggle, then you're better than me who has to struggle to waltz around the, the stage to grab the props or whatever, right? And there's all these kind of qualities that we don't really, I think that we intuitively relate to, but we never consciously try to talk about or can talk about in a meaningful way. It's just that we argue about it and 
no, but he's better than Anthony's the best and you know, whatever else. So, um, but yeah, I, re I remember, I, I want to say, I, I want to say, uh, a couple of Anthony Gatto stories. And then maybe if you, if you have one of your own, you can, um, jump in, but, uh, just to wrap up. So a couple of Anthony Gatto memories. The first one was 1989 IJA Baltimore, Maryland. It was my third IJA festival. And of course, by then I was a huge fan of Anthony Gatto and his juggling. Um, Mary Wilkins was a, a IJA member who did an amazing pre-internet service where you could get this list of Xeroxed pages, which would just have numbers on it uh, with uh, video descriptions and they were VHS tapes. So you could get this list from Mary Wilkins. You could send her a self-addressed stamped envelope with your selections for that week. I think you could borrow three tapes at a time from her library. It was a lending library. And she would send you these VHS tapes in the mail and you would watch them and then you would send them back to her with another selection, with another envelope of stamps that she could send you videos. Uh, yeah, video sharing before the internet. And so of course I had seen the Gatto videos. Like even it was 1986, I had seen the Gatto videos. I'd seen the, you know, with on That's Incredible, he's there juggling with Dick Franco, mm. right? They're juggling together in the dressing room. He's got the robot head on the pole. He throws the ball into the top hat of the robot. It comes out the mouth. He catches it in the waist pocket on his on his belt. So I'd seen. So I knew Gatto, right? I knew of Gatto, and he was already like my hero. Like man, this this is the best thing ever. So when I went to IJA in '89, uh, Gatto was going to be there, and of course, uh, you know, I was whatever 10, 11 years old or whatever, and I was man, uh, gonna see Gatto. And I remember the first day of the festival, we went across the street, me and my mom, uh, to get some, it was a pizzeria there. And when we walked in, there was Anthony Gatto sitting there eating a pizza. And I, I like, it was like a movie. Like I, I put my arm out to stop my mom. I'm like, stop, look, there's Anthony. <laughs> like, like I had seen, you know, the biggest movie star in the world. Uh, and I just remember think, I just remember going to kind of like, I, I snuck a, like I didn't want him to see me looking at him. So I had to like kind of discreetly sneak a peek at his pizza to see what toppings it had. Cause I thought like I wanted to order the same kind of pizza. <laughs> like I wanted to be like Anthony. And I don't know if you remember the, uh, the video from the 1989 festival. If you, if you get that VHS in Sweden, the 89 festival. Yeah. And there's a little interview with Anthony there. And he has this, this haircut where the, like his back, like the front of his hair is sticking up. It's like poofing out. And then the interviewer is like, oh, that's a really cool haircut. Like, or maybe it was the IJ, it was the Juggle Magazine art, the Juggler's No, World. isn't it, isn't it to be the best? No, 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 With no, With the no, brush? No, 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 you're thinking something, no, listen. Okay. It's either on the IJA videotape from that year or it's in Juggler's World interview. Maybe it was the Juggler's World interview. But he's got like the hair on, you know what I'm talking about, the yeah, haircut. Yeah, And they say to him, uh, no, because the, the videotape was, what's your favorite band? And he goes, R.E.M. on the videotape. He's laughing, he's like, <laughs> R.E.M. And I, so then I went out and bought REM. Like I got to go listen to REM. And then, um, but in the, in the Juggler's World interview with Anthony, he has like his, his bangs, they call it, sticking kind of not straight up, but kind of flooped over. And there's like, oh, that's such a cool haircut. How did, it, how did you do that? And he's like, oh, my hair was wet and I was flying to Japan and it just, I woke up and it just kind of popped out that way, was the quote. So of course I went to the barber the next day and like got the haircut. And then he also had like the, if you remember, he had the Renegade Clubs, so I had to get Renegade Clubs, and he had the decorations. Mm -hmm. 
but then he would take his decorations and cut them like a couple inches too short um, on either end of the club decoration so that part of the body would stick out there like the color would come the color of the body would come through do you, do you see what I mean yeah, well it's sure. like if you have you have your decorations yeah. covering the body of the club yeah, yeah. so you would cut it short oh, okay so you'd have like the let's say the let's say the the, the, the color of the club body is purple mm. so if you're looking in the middle of the club you got purple mm. then you if you go down towards the handle you have a section of gold mm-hmm. foil, but then there's a little sliver of purple before you get to the joint of the body and the handle. Okay. Oh, okay. He and in that. fact, for a while, it was on the Renegade website, like Gatto Cut Decorations. You could get the Gatto Cut. And it was like <laughs> extra money because they had to do extra cut. So you the Gatto Cut. And they really have to put an extra piece of tape there, right? Like two extra pieces of tape or something like to, you know, so it was yeah. like more money, right? So I got Gatto Cut, <laughs> Gatto Cut Renegades. <laughs> I had the Gatto Cut haircut. <laughs> And like my dad had, um, my dad had a VHS camera in 1989, and he had filmed all of Gatto at the festival, like rehearsing and training and stuff. And I memorized how many catches he did of every trick that year. And like mm. I remember him trying five club single back crosses, and he could do some single back crosses with five club singles, but he couldn't run it. But mm. and then that was the year he also did 45 minutes and two seconds of five club endurance in the gym, and he ended with a, a five club three up. My dad filmed the whole thing. I have that somewhere in Ohio. <laughs> like a VHS tape of Anthony running five clubs for 45 minutes in two seconds. It's just incredible. You got to dig that up. Yeah. And I have another story about Anthony Gatto that I, <laughs> that I think is pretty fun. So I went to see him in Vegas um, around, I don't know, 95 or something like that, let's say, 1995. And I saw him at the at the showroom with Melinda, uh, First Lady of Magic, um, David Sachs's sister <laughs> and uh, after the show Anthony was standing in the lobby of the theater and I mean all the performers from the show were standing out in the lobby of the theater and they were greeting the audience as they left and so I was just like oh yeah I'm gonna go shake Anthony's hand and I, I think I'd met him before a few times uh, before that and he kind of knew my name and uh, we weren't very close but like we were acquainted with each other so I was like oh yeah this will be fun I'll go say hi to Anthony and say you know like amazing job and that'd be really a, a cool thing to do and so I'm waiting, I'm waiting in line to to talk to Anthony and right in front of me as a little kid probably like eight or nine years old and I see the kid walk up to Anthony and he's just like uh hey how many rings were you doing in your act and at first like when the kid said it uh it kind of sounded like the kid was psyched about it like the kid you know was like oh man how many rings were you doing and that's how Anthony took the question and you know, Anthony's, uh, he's such a nice dude. Like he was a very, very nice guy. And he was like, Oh wow. Like thanks for coming to the show. That's so cool. And like, it was pretty cool that the kid seemed to care about how many rings Anthony was doing. Right. Especially for like a young kid. That's you, that you notice that kind of detail. I think Anthony was pretty stoked. It's like, Oh yeah, here's a kid who really appreciated my performance today. So he was super nice to the kid and he was like, Oh yeah. You know, uh, near the end of my act, I did I did nine rings and then like thanks for coming to the show and like he was so happy and then the kid just looks at Anthony and goes nine rings well my dad can do ten <laughs> and walks away, and the kid just walks away like uh, and then Anthony's just standing there st- and then he he sees me seeing him watching the situation and it was kind of awkward right like <laughs> like you know like I had just witnessed this. This, this stupid kid kind of belittle Anthony, right? And just kind of trump him, like, you know, one-up him by being like, you did nine rings, my dad can do 10 rings. Like whatever number, An- you know, Anthony would have said his dad could do one more, obviously, right? 
and it was just like so Anthony went from being really excited that this that he had maybe impressed this or you know like ha- like given this kid a nice time in the in the show like a nice experience right with his act to being like ah stupid kid and then I'm just there next in line and like what do you say about that man like hey it was a good act I, I like the nine rings or whatever it was kind of awkward but I, I never I mean that really made a big impact on me too just artistically of just thinking about this game of numbers and and being like uh yeah, if if I do nine rings, you can just say ten rings, and then you know you win. Even if you can't do it, right? You can just say your dad, your dad did ten rings. Well, someone had asked Anthony, you know, like so. Besides, like numbers and like highly, you know, difficult juggling. Like, what do you appreciate about juggling visually or or something else? Mm, like, yeah. someone had actually asked Anthony that question, and the answer that I've heard that he gave was, well. Six ball shower changing direction is nice. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Really cool. Yeah.